we'll go ahead, obviously, and um, start where we did last week. And, you know, if um, a lot of the people that aren't here tonight demand it, well, I can do a fast review next week. But anyway, um, <clears throat> we'll start with prayer, and then we'll, we'll try to pick up about where we left off um, last Wednesday night. So, let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the day. Thank you that you go through each day with us. You guide us in ways that we don't know sometimes, and who knows what you, how you help us in times we don't even realize it. But we thank you for bringing us here. We pray that you would bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, <clears throat> last week we left off at pretty much through the 1200s, the 13th century. And I'm going to try to deal with about 1350 up until close to 1500 tonight, okay? Um, this study, in a way, is getting harder every week because the, the, the closer we get, we're talking about 500, 600 years ago, but the closer we get, the more information there is and the more that went on. And it's just harder and harder to know what to leave out and what high points to hit because there's, there's so much interconnected that, you know, you can get ahead of yourself and a certain movement or doctrine or teaching or group or whatever up here doesn't make sense unless you know 100 years previous what made them gather together and band together and be a group. Anyway, it's just kind of, I want you to feel sorry for me. That's, I mean, that's the bottom line. Um, this is just hard to pick through. And, and so I'm doing my best <clears throat> this week to hit just the high spots um, of what you, and let me try to give an overview. Fundamentally, the gradual, it was very gradual, corruption of the Christian church um, down through the centuries. The corruption was, in a sense, brought on by their own success. When the church first started out with the apostles, it was considered um, a band of ne'er-do-wells, very small, weird people. Um, nobody understood what they were up to, and so they were just ignored. But the more converts Christianity made, and the more it grew, and the more converts they got, and the more it grew, it, it started to become in the 300s, it started to become popular to be a Christian, especially when Constantine, the first emperor, who declared Christianity legal. So they're very, 
success in growth made them vulnerable to superficial Christians flooding in because it became the popular thing to do. It was the way to advance, especially once an emperor starts saying, I'm a Christian. Well, then everybody's a Christian. They aren't, but they say they are because it helps them climb the ladder. It helps socially and all those kinds of things. Well, to make a long story short, that power began to increase and increase while the secular Roman Empire was crumbling. And so by the time you get to the fours and the early fives, the Roman Empire is collapsing. In its place, it is, it's not like no one noticed, but by then the church had gotten so widespread and so powerful that when um, <clears throat> Attila the Hun made his run at the city of Rome, it was the Pope that negotiated with him not to sack the place, not the emperor. The emperor had hit the road. Um, that's, so in four to 500 years, the church gained that kind of power that the Pope was, the, was running things. Um, now, they didn't call him Pope by then, but by the six, 600, they did. Um, and it, everything was very, very gradual. But doctrines began to grow up and be thought of and invented different from what the Scripture taught until you have almost, you almost have two parallel universes. You have all the Bible teaching where Jesus said, I don't even have a place to lay my head. He was homeless. He didn't have any money. And at the same time, you have the church owning half of Italy, half of France, you know, massive tracts of land. And power literally um, of life and death. When the Roman Empire collapsed, secular authority kind of got swallowed up under church authority. So while there was no alarm went off on some Thursday morning and everybody got up and said, hey, now the Pope has power and the church has power. It didn't happen like that. It's just little tiny incremental steps, but in 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, pretty soon, the church also has sole power over civil authority. And the church and civil authority were mingled to where they were one and the same. Civil authority would use the power of the military, the power of execution and laws to force Christianity on everybody. Um, and they would serve, the Pope would name kings. Now what does all that produce? As it continues to go on, um, and the church grows and grows in its power, in its luxury, in its riches, with that always comes moral corruption, okay? And the worst place it became, um, it came to infect was the clergy. Um, the whole 
massive superstructure and hierarchy of archbishops and cardinals and bishops and um, local priests and monasteries and monks and convents and nuns and all that stuff. All of that required money. That's a big enterprise to run. So you figure out ways to raise money um, and more and more not only comes in, but you need more and more. And the church also began to elbow as far as the fundamentals of Christianity, basically elbowed Christ to the side. Now the church became the mediator between God and man, whereas the Bible says it's Christ. Jesus is God, clothed himself in human flesh, walked among us, identified with us, died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. He is the mediator. Now we, with the mystery of the Trinity, we approach God the Father through Jesus, his Son. The church elbowed Jesus, in a sense, out of the way, took over for him, though he never asked him to, and began dispensing salvation, deciding what sins could be forgiven and what couldn't be, and basically took over, um, in a spiritual sense, the consciences of people. And so now, a run-of-the-mill person who, you know, was born into the Christian church um, may not have known a thing about the Bible or anything else, but they want, they're told what to do as far as I have to go to confession or I can't be forgiven. I have to take communion or I can't be saved. I can't go to heaven. Um, everything came under the authority of the church, even the consciences of people and men took the power over all these kinds of things it it continued on and continued on there were a few what would you call um back to basics movements that would crop up they never got they were never very successful and so there was just a general march towards deeper and deeper corruption now by the time you get <clears throat> to the late the 1200s the 1300s you get the first of what I would call for our lesson tonight um, pre-reformers okay the real reformers were in the 1500s beginning mostly with Martin Luther um, that was a Protestant Reformation, yet an absolute volcano blow up of the whole church, and we'll get into that next week. But there were some kind of early bird reformers who had the same ideas of the later reformers, but they were they were right in what they said, but they were their timing. They were 
they were early, let's put it that way. Um, they were shouted down, and in every case, they were burned at the stake. But their ideas lived on. And when timing got right, other people, a hundred years later, came up with the same ideas, the same critiques of what was going on in the church, and it caught fire with them because enough people also recognized it. These other guys were dead right, but they were too early. It's, those, it's that period of time that we want to look at um, here tonight. Now, <clears throat> there were probably, well, there were several, a bunch of martyrs, um, but there's about three that we could consider, you know, the top guys <clears throat> um, hitting the high spots. <clears throat> the first one, I just, I think I mentioned him last week. The first one is John Wycliffe, or Wycliffe, however you pronounce it, want to pronounce it. Um, W-Y-C-L-I-F, okay? John Wycliffe, nobody knows when he was born exactly, early 1300s. Uh, he died in 1384, but he was English um, and ended up being a teacher, first a student, and then a professor at Oxford, <clears throat> which then was, and still is probably the major university in um, England. And, of course, in that day, the curriculum in any university was philosophy. Um, there was not a lot of science, but some. Um, you studied a bunch of languages. Remember, the official language back then of the church was still Latin. Plus, you had all the local languages, whether it would be German or you know Spanish or whatever the case was. Um, and the <clears throat> everybody knew, you know, French, and so they taught. They studied a lot of languages. They studied logic, um, but everybody had to study theology. Theology was still it was considered um, the main thing to think of. That and philosophy. Well, he became Wycliffe became a very prominent um, professor of philosophy and theology. People, uh, students would flock to his lectures. His classes were always full. Um, and he was a deeply religious, deeply um, pious, is a word we would, would use, person. Um, the universities, of course, were the centers of where Everybody that was going to be a clergyman or whoever went to, to be educated. So there was a, obviously a real link between, well, everybody that taught at the universities was also clergy. So Wycliffe was ordained. He was a clergyman. Well, they were close to whatever, what was going on. And they, they could see uh, the, the direction of the church and so forth. Well, <clears throat> Wycliffe began to notice things that he felt as he studied the Bible and he laid what was going on in the church and some of the beliefs of the church next to the Bible, 
he became more and more alarmed, concerned, upset, and whatever, because of the gaps he saw with what was going on in the church and what should have been going on in the church according to the scripture, okay? So he's teaching clergymen, and he begins to bring up questions and issues about some of the teachings of the church that he felt were wrong, were not biblical, okay? Some of them were. Um, he had quite a few, but <clears throat> um, <clears throat> let me give you several. First of all, um, he questioned, now some of these we've mentioned to you, but I want to be as precise as I can to explain to you. Number one, and not in this order, but um, he called into question indulgences. Now I mentioned indulgences, I think, to you before. Indulgences has no place in scriptures, never mentioned scriptures, nothing in the Bible anywhere about it. But the Roman church began to teach that by misusing a scripture where Jesus said, I give to you the, to the disciples, I give you the, king, the keys of the kingdom, and uh, what sins you bind shall be bound, what sins you loose shall be loose, meaning uh, you have the power to you know, decide what's sin and what isn't, except that isn't what it says. The, tent, the tense, and in fact it says this, Jesus said, whatever sins you bind shall have been bound in heaven. Meaning, God will direct you as to what things you should require of Christians and what things you don't. And all of that, as I explained before, was in the context of the newness of Christianity in taking the place of Judaism. Now, Judaism, you could be cut off as a Jew, a faithful Jew, if you ate bacon for breakfast. You know, you, weren't, you had all the clean meat, unclean animals you could eat, and if you ate of these unclean, you couldn't go to the temple and worship and so forth. They had all those kinds of rules which Christianity replaced, okay? So what Jesus is talking about there is kind of the illustration that he gave of the new wine in old wineskins. Um, everybody knows that, you know, leather wineskins. You put there, it's flexible. You put new wine in it, and as it matured, whatever fermented, the wine, the old, the new wineskin would conform to that, and then it would over however long, somewhat harden, okay? Well, if you put another, if you emptied all that out and you put new wine into old wineskins, as it expanded, they couldn't take it and they split and it's, it's gone, okay? Jesus used that illustration. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. So Christianity was new wine, <laughs> and it wouldn't fit in the old wineskin of Judaism, okay? That's what he's talking about. And you find that in the book of Acts, where the apostles had to decide, what do we do with these non-Jews, these Gentiles that are becoming converted? They don't know all this. 
it's a burden on them to tell them, okay, now you can't, you know, um, you can't eat whatever. Um, you can't do this. You can't do that. Jesus said then, heaven, the Spirit of God, will direct you as to what things to bind on people, make requirements of them. Or in other words, Christian behavior involves this. And he said he will help you to recognize what not to require of them because you're striking out in a new direction. Okay, that's all he's talking about. The church, and I think on purpose, interpreted that is we have the power not only to say what's sin and what isn't sin, but to forgive it or not forgive it. We do. Not as that particular scripture says, it shall have been forgiven in heaven, meaning God would lead us. No, we, we don't need your leading. We'll decide it. So that set up then what's called indulgences. Indulgences was part of a bigger picture of what gets done with sin. Okay? What do you do with people who sin? Which is all Christians, they claim. There are two things that they, would, they separated. One, there's the guilt of the sin itself. And there is the performance of um, penance, um, you know, doing stuff to make up for it as a consequence of the guilt, okay? So you got the guilt, and then you've got the prescription of stuff you have to do to make up for it. Um, originally, they still stuck to the belief that only Christ can forgive sins, okay? But we get to say what you have to do in addition to that to get your slate clean, okay? After some centuries of that thinking, finally it got to where Jesus was no longer the forgiver of the guilt. They merged the guilt and the consequences of the guilt together and declared themselves to be in charge of what got forgiven and how you had to perform certain things in order for it to be covered. Okay? Now, you're totally confused. Um, let me throw something else in. <clears throat> it's what's called mortal sins and venial sins. Mortal sin is seven deadly sins, you know, that kind of stuff. You're going to hell. Venial sins were mistakes, failures, shortcomings, not the kind, it's not, it's not murder, it's, you know, maybe gossiping about somebody, okay? Um, that's not right, but it's venial. It won't send you to hell immediately or cut you off from God. Murder, that's a different story, okay? Now, there's not falsehood with there. There's some differences, but um, originally, you know, only God could forgive this. They could forgive that. Pretty soon it got to where we can forgive it all or not forgive it. And so <clears throat> indulgence came from, the term means to grant remittance of both the guilt and to prescribe stuff you have to do. Now, if you do something really bad, you can get forgiven by going to confession, confessing it to the priest. Okay, then the priest can forgive you, but he also prescribes. Let's just say you gossiped, 
Well, I don't know. Something, you know, not horrible. <clears throat> okay, that's worth, oh, okay, you got to say 10 Hail Marys. You got to say 15 Our Fathers. And um, put 50 bucks in the offering. <clears throat> now, let's say you did something really bad. <clears throat> some kind of thievery, you know, some sexual sin, some harm, you beat your neighbor up, you, whatever. Well, that's different. You still got to go to confession. The priest can give you what's called absolution. But you got to take a pilgrimage over, you know, over the bridge and through the woods to grandma's house. You've got to go to a shrine someplace that's a pretty good trip and you might have to go over the Alps and you might have to go through snow and it's tough and that suffering that you go is helping make up for what you did and you got to go to this shrine and you got to pray and you got to give some money and you got to trek all the way back and so the church then put themselves in between God and the person and set the ground rules for what could be forgiven, when it's forgiven, how many things you got to do, and all that. Now, here's the last part of indulgences. When the church, through the priest, okay, through the priest, when the, when the uh, confessor, the person's confessing, came, how did the priest have the power, the right, to declare that person forgiven and absolved. And absolved means to completely clear the record. Okay? Absolution is the term. Well, they could dip into what's called the treasury of merit. There is a bank account. It, it is on, the only the church can pay out of the bank account to someone else's account. Only the priest could do it. Ultimately, the pope could. And what were they? Wh what was the account full of? And this could get foggy, and I'll, I'll keep. I won't drive you nuts tonight. What account are they drawing on? The massive amount of merit, brownie points, <laughs> uh, good points merit of all of the saints and of Jesus. Jesus' perfect obedience, you know, he, he, in him was no sin. So all of Jesus' good deeds in his life on earth piled up billions of points in the treasury of merit. The church's bank account of spiritual credit, okay, all the saints, all the martyrs, all the people who went before, the unnumbered people, saints, saints, so and so and so and so and so and so. All these people contributed, and merit meant, especially for the saints and the martyrs. Um, I've used this illustration, and I, it's, a, it's not a very good one, and it's probably way too simple. Um, but nevertheless, when I say simple, I mean it's more complex than this. But um, we've usually singled out, you know, someone here, and I'll be, I don't know who to pick tonight. Um, <clears throat> I think we've probably picked on Bob Steele before. Um, you know, Bob Welch. Bob Welch is back here. 
you know, he's a motorcycle guy. You know what I mean? He needs some merit. Um, so let Bob, now Bob gets his life together, but boy, he's, pil- he's built up a deficit. I mean, you talk about overdraws on your account. He's in bad shape. And the, the, the truth of the matter is, he's not going to get enough points built up to make it to heaven. Fortunately, there's a way out. He can go, he goes to the priest, he confesses, he does all these things. And the priest, because he's a signer on the account, the priest, the bishop, the archbishop, whoever, can absolve him and this is all spiritual, it's not on paper, but he draws off of that account in heaven. Bob needs 1,000 points to get into heaven. He's only got 250, you know, and that's, a, that's, that's the best he's ever got. <clears throat> well, the guy needs 750 points. I can, give him an, I can give him an absolution, an indulgence for two, uh, 750 points and... But he has to do some things in return. He may have to take a pilgrimage. He may have to do it. But he also, almost without fail, he's got to contribute some money to the church. Okay? Doing all that, he'll get his 750 points. And he, if he gets an indulgence, what's it called an indulgence, from me, the priest, he bypasses purgatory. Now, there is no such thing as purgatory. The Bible never mentions it. It's never heard of. But nevertheless, purgatory was also an invention for guys like Bob, who didn't get 750 points, to go to. Okay? So, if he gets an indulgence from me, he gets to bypass purgatory. Floyd, there's no way. There's no way he's going to get 700 or how many ever points. So, Floyd's going to purgatory. Now, he was a good... You know, he was a good Catholic. He was a good, you know, he did everything he was supposed to do. So he's eventually going to get to heaven. But he's got a stopover in purgatory. And it could be for thousands of years, literally. But if I can get the priest to say a mass for Floyd, and I know this would not happen, but if I could get Kelly to donate some money on behalf of Floyd, What did you say? (laughs) If we can, you know, even other people that are nicer than his wife could contribute money for poor Floyd, light some candles, say some prayers, we can get him out of purgatory early. Okay? Now listen, I'm not making any of this up. So pretty soon it got to be just a... um, crass money game and what I could do as as a priest or as a, a local priest with the authority of the bishop or the the pope in Rome we can <clears throat> we can declare um, an indulgence and this also graduate gradually developed it used to be indulgences were only available for sins that you had committed. But now it was extended to sins not yet committed. So what does that mean? 
I'm going on a bender at the Playboy Club two weeks from now, but I'm going to go and get confess, and you got a piece of paper, indulgence. I'm forgiven for what I'm planning two weeks from now. Now, you may think, though, this is great. I'm not making any of it up. Um, what a way to raise money. And that's what it solely become, became. Also, let's say, and again, we'd have to exclude Kelly, but those of us who like Floyd, we know Floyd's in purgatory. She didn't care, but we do because we like Floyd. We know Floyd is in cer a certain level of purgatory. There are fires there. It's purging of your flaws and your failures and stuff you did here in this life. Not mortal sin, venial sin. But I, man, I like Floyd, and you guys like Floyd. And so if we can raise enough money, burn enough candles, I can say a couple masses, we get to help Floyd get out early. Again, what's the key ingredient? That, so, that is the final straw, and I'm getting way ahead of myself here, the final straw for Martin Luther in 1517, who had had it um, as a priest, a monk, a preacher, professor in Germany. Um, but he wasn't the first. Wycliffe strongly opposed indulgences, the whole notion of a priest being able to absolve a person of their guilt. Only God could do that, according to Wycliffe. Wycliffe also disagreed with Originally, there were only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But over the centuries, extra sacraments were added, in addition to the only two that Jesus added, or gave us in the New Testament. So, the sacrament of marriage, the sacrament of, um, I can't remember all of them, the priesthood, holy orders, um, extreme unction or last rites, um, I can't remember. Anyway, it, 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 turned, it got to seven. Wycliffe, the five extra ones that the church had cooked up over a thousand years, I, he said, I'm not buying these. I'm sticking to just the two that Jesus gave us. Then the last thing that got uh, Wycliffe in the most trouble was he attacked, and this was all later in his life. Was, he, he lived, I think he was somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe 60-some years old. Only the last, say, 10 years of his life did he become, they called it, more and more radical because he began attacking some of these things. He said, listen, this isn't in the Bible. Um, we got to get back to just the Bible. The final thing he attacked, which he had a lot, he had some of the noblemen, some of the royalty in England protecting him from the Archbishop of Canterbury, from the Pope in Rome, who put out, um, they excommunicated him, and they put a price on his head. Um, <clears throat> they protected him from all that. But what got him in trouble and lost him a lot of his supporters was the last thing he attacked, which was transubstantiation. Um, and transubstantiation, I've explained to you, is the bread and the wine in communion. Um, 
when the priest literally says the words, these are, this is the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. When that blessing is said, the belief is that while the appearance of the bread and the wine remains exactly the same to sight, in, actual, in actuality, though it remains, it's, uh, it keeps its appearance, it becomes literally the body and the blood of Christ. Okay? Now, early on, um, that wasn't the belief in the days of the apostles, and everyone took communion, the, the bread and the cup. It, as they began to get into transubstantiation, that when the priest blesses it, it becomes literally the blood and the body of Christ. The belief crept in that the laity, they can take the bread, but they can't have the blood. They can't have the wine. Okay, Now, that has gone away. But at that point, they could only have the bread. The, the blood was too, only the priest could drink that. He, but he drank it on behalf of the laity. So um, you still were credited with it, but he did it for you. Okay? When he attacked that notion that it actually became body and blood of Christ, then um, <clears throat> pressure began to come down on him. Now, I said that these were all martyrs. Technically, Wycliffe was not a martyr. Um, he was thrown out of Oxford, went into kind of exile. He still wrote, but one thing he did in those last 10 years of his life, he spent a lot of time gathering his students and earnest-hearted wannabe clergymen, you know, people that wanted it, felt that they were called to be clergy. Um, and he sent them all over England as itinerant traveling preachers. They were to wear, you know, the just the plain un whatever kind of fabric, the the brown robe with the hood and a rope. They didn't even have a leather belt. Very poor. Uh, the, he called them the poor priests or the poor preachers. And many cases unless the weather was such, they were required to be barefoot, okay? And they had a staff with them, you know. They could only take whatever little bit of food they could carry, but they basically went out to live, um, be housed, maybe every different night somewhere else, but the people were to receive them into the homes, feed them. They owned nothing, had nothing, just traveled on the move all the time, preached at the roadsides, the the inns the wherever they could and they were nicknamed it was a derogatory name but it stuck they were nicknamed the lollards <clears throat> lollard meant mumbler or or mutterer okay um it was a derogatory term these guys we you know we we don't even listen to them we just hear them talking and trying to teach the bible we don't pay attention but he sent these people out and that was kind of the last straw because these people were going out preaching Wycliffe's ideas, which were contrary to Rome and to the Pope and to the hierarchy. So, you know, they, we got to do something, was their feeling. In the meantime, he died. Just a normal, 
natural causes, okay? That was in 1384. Well, now what do they do? Well, we still got to get rid of the Lollards. So they, Parliament in England passed stuff, and it wasn't until like 1405, 6, they passed anti-Lollard provisions, laws, that they were, they couldn't go preach and travel around anymore. Um, that took a while to, for it to sink in, but they finally got rid of the Lollards. And then, clear in 1428, um, a church council that was meeting someplace in Germany um, voted to burn all of, tin, uh, all of Wycliffe's works and to dig his bones up and burn them and throw them in a river. So, let's see, 18, uh, 80, 84, that's 16, and another 28. So, what is that? That's up into the 40 years after he died. They dug him up, and as far as I know, they didn't you know, embalm people, so I don't even know what was left. Apparently just his bones. But they burned his bones as a symbolic you know, statement that he was a heretic and his writings were all burned, dug up where they could find him. But it was too late. Um, there was, they waited too long, I guess you'd say, and he had too much impact. The other great thing that, that Wycliffe did that also made him a heretic was he translated the Bible out of Latin into English so that the run-of-the-mill people could read the Bible. That was forbidden. No one, no one should have a Bible in English if you're an English speaker. You had to only have it in Latin, and the priest could read it, maybe, because a lot of times they couldn't. But it was considered, well, it was sin for somebody to have the, language, the Bible in their own language which is insane. Um, but that really sealed his doom. And so to fix him good, they dug him up, burned his bones, and scattered him on a nearby creek. Okay? Um, now, Wycliffe lives on. I mentioned, I think, when we introduced it last week, that Wycliffe lives on, really, in a, a missions organization that is worldwide. Um, Wycliffe translators, and they go into... Um, you know, tribes that have had very little contact with civilization don't even have their own alphabet or a written language, just a verbal. And they live with them um, for at least five, six years. And, I mean, they build a hut and live with them. Um, and they take their verbal sounds, they create an alphabet, and teach that tribe the alphabet, and then get it to writing, and it it takes a lot of years. Um, but their goal is to try to get the scripture in every known human language. Um, and they're well on their way to, to doing that. Um, so Wycliffe, in that sense, lives on. Okay? Um, meantime, before Wycliffe died, um, <clears throat> we'll at least get this far. Um, I can't remember the king. I think Edward somebody of England. Um, I think it was his son married the daughter of the king of Bohemia. Okay? Now, 
you still, <laughs> you got what, 12 minutes to try to stay awake. Um, every, listen, this is another whole story, but if you look, even starting back then till today, the European, all of the European different monarchies, it's the most um, inbred, stagnant farm pond thing you've ever heard of. Um, I mean, it's third eye in the middle of your forehead stuff um, because they're all so intermarried, okay? So, but you did it for treaty reasons and security reasons and all kinds of stuff. I think it was a guy named John somebody of Edward in England who married the daughter of the king of Bohemia. Now that, at that point, it was a chunk of Germany um, and ultimately what became Czechoslovakia and part of Austria, okay? Well, Bohemia, because that, that set up a link between England and Bohemia. Bohemian students started going to Oxford, sitting under Wycliffe. And as Wycliffe taught them, and there's all this movement, commerce and everything else going back and forth at a heightened level between England and Bohemia, there was a student at the new University of Prague named John Huss. John Huss went to Oxford, studied, came under the influence of Wycliffe, bought his ideas, went back to Bohemia, ended up being the, the preacher at the university chapel in Prague. Um, excellent preacher, crowds jammed the cathedrals to hear him. Um, but he too began to um, attack the corruption that he saw in the church along the same lines of Wycliffe. M many of the same arguments. Um, it wasn't because he was mimicking um, Wycliffe. Everybody saw, or not everybody, obviously, but enough people began to see the same things. The clergy are fat and rich, and uh, they're, listen, you have, these, you have celibate. One of the popes that was about, well, he was a little bit later. We won't get to that, this third guy tonight. But one of the popes had 15 kids. Not bad for being celibate. Um, there were a number of, I mean, the, the priests had mistresses. And it was a mess, okay? And so there was always a few people that would say, hey, this, this isn't what we're supposed to believe, what we're supposed to do. Um, there was another thing. Um, and I'll make this quick. <clears throat> There's another thing called simony, Okay? S-I-M-O-N-Y. Simony comes from Simon the Sorcerer in Acts um, chapter 8. Okay? Um, the guy that went to Peter and John and offered money. They, he tried to give him money. Would you give me power you know, to preach and perform miracles and so forth like you're doing? And of course they denounced him. And um, that ended up becoming a name for buying a priest's office, okay? There were tons of priests uh, and churches that didn't have priests, okay? Well, if you had a, enough money, you didn't have to have a lot, 
you could bribe the local bishop or even the archbishop over the whole area, and he could give you, he could assign you um, the head priest of such and such a parish, okay? You could get any number of those assignments. So you could get the assignment to 10 parishes, and you didn't live in any of them, and you never went to them. But you got the collection of what the salary was that was going to be paid to the head priest. You got it. That's called simony. Or another use of it was people would, noblemen, rich people, would buy a bishopric or something like that for their son. Okay? Um, everything just became a massive um, sleazy money deal. Okay? So, Huss attacked a lot of those things in Bohemia. He became a hero in Bohemia, much smaller area, of course, than England, um, and became the number one preacher in the country, okay? Um, that didn't set well. He's a bit later. Um, he's up into the 1400s. Um, and let me just check real real quick here in my notes that I the date that um, that Huss um, was burned if I can find it no I left it. yeah here we go um, I think it was like 1430 something um, <clears throat> no it was 1415 that Huss um, was finally uh, the Pope excommunicated him they commanded that all of his books would be burned, and it was in July of 1415 that Huss was burned at the stake. Okay, um, and the, interestingly, he was 102 years early. In 1517 is when Martin Luther nailed his 95 arguments against the church to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, which when you dear souls as a congregation sent us over there two years ago, it's really something to stand there. It's massive bronze doors. Now, I really don't know how he nailed it to a brass door, but, I, you know, there's wood trim around it. Anyway, um, that's where he nailed this challenge to a debate to the University of Wittenberg scholarship people about the wrongs going on in the church. Many of them, the very same things that Huss had complained about, Wycliffe had complained about. Um, so that's what I mean, that Wycliffe, Huss, and the guy I haven't gotten to yet, um, I'll just do it. We'll be done still by eight. Um, Girolamo... Savonarola, okay? Now, Savonarola was much later in the 1400s. He was born in the 1420s or 30s, and he ended up, he was in Florence, okay? Now, same kind of a deal. He saw, he was very pious, he was a priest, he was a Dominican, he was in a monastery there, and if anybody remembers um, much about, I think it was, well, it wasn't Romeo and Juliet involved, uh, uh, the de, um, de Medici family. 
I don't see anybody. I must be off. But anyway, there's the, I think it was this Italian fan. You're Italian. You should know this. Um, the um, um, Medici or, um, or Medici, however you, you know, family, ruled Florence, okay? Well, <clears throat> this guy Savonarola um, began to preach against the just, just the wickedness of the city, okay? Um, and he got real popular, and he preached as if he felt like the end times was close. Judgment was coming. So he preached, well, the whole town, much of the city of Florence, repented. They had these big festivals every year that were just wild-eyed bacchanalia stuff, um, drunk deals. Um, well, they turned them into, um, they kept this date, but they turned them, these feasts and whatever, into times where they marched to the streets, children marched to the streets, singing hymns of the church and handing out um, money and so forth to the poor. The whole city was transformed, really, by Savonarola. He was um, massively popular as a preacher. Well, he began the same thing that Wycliffe and Huss did, pointing out, hey, this isn't right. What's going on? Um, he got crossways with um, Pope Alexander the Sixth. Okay, now if you can remember from last week, we talked about the period of time when there was three popes at once. Okay, well, this Alexander the Sixth was along the tail end of that period of time. But the fact that there were three popes, all each, each of them excommunicating each other, all of them trying to collect money from the churches, brought to the front. This is, things are crazy. This is corrupt. So Savonarola began preaching about that. The um, Medici family protected him because they were well-to-do. They didn't want to, you know, they were kind of at odds with the Pope and some of the authorities because they were always out after their money. So they protected him. Well, but he kept going and he got worse and worse He's, as, he, as his preaching named more and more bad stuff that people were doing. Then he started losing some friends, including the uh, Medicis. So um, finally they turned against him. In the meantime, then between a, this fight with the Pope Alexandri, the Medicis got thrown out of Florence. So he got back in favor, Savonarola, for a bit. He set up a brand new government in Florence, and it was a republic. It was similar to what we have. It was representatives, lay people, clergy, you know, everything. Um, that lasted for a while. Then roles reversed. The Medici's got back in power. The Pope was still after him. And so the Pope started coming down on him. He excommunicated him, demanded he come to Rome, refused to go to Rome. Um, so finally, in it was 1498, um, some of his heights was in 1491, 92. 1492, to help you, that's when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Um, so you're up into that period of exploration and all that. Um, 
But they finally, instead of burning Savonarola at the stake, they first hanged him in the big city plaza in Florence. Then they burned him. Um, and so he met the same end over the same issues as Wycliffe, Huss, Savonarola. They would be the, th the big three, I guess you could say, the most prominent, well-known, popular martyrs of the 1400s that ran afoul of the authorities. But that started cracks in the foundation and within, well, Savonarola, you have in 19 years, you have Martin Luther and the beginning of the German Reformation and then's when the whole place blew up. Okay, that's what we'll start into um, next week and I'll do my best to try to, it's not like I'm this genius coming to the, you poor souls. And I'm trying to dumb it down so you can understand it. I'm not saying that. It's so, there's an English Reformation, a German Reformation, a Swiss Reformation, um, Scandinavian Reformation, um, French Re Reformation. It's, it's, it's just like a fire hose worth of information. But anyway, we'll, we'll but there's direct links we have to um, American churches and so forth that are directly linked to the Reformation. So hopefully it's a little more apropos and easy to identify with. Okay. <clears throat> now see it's 802. That's not too bad. We'll pray and let you get out of here. Father in heaven, we do thank you for, I'm grateful that these truths, that this history is recorded so that we know about it. And we look at people who sacrifice so far greater for just the truth and stood by it even when they were faced with death. So I, I hope, Lord, that this is a benefit to us um, as we continue to study. Dismiss us, keep us safe as we go our way tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you are dismissed. Come back next week with all this memorized, and we'll pick up where we left off. <clears throat>